How on earth do so many innocent people end up in jail in the land of the free? Can you imagine being convicted of a crime you didn't commit? And even when you can prove your innocence, you still appear guilty. After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker. This is Shaken and Stirred. I'm here with my co-host, Tom Astor. And our guest today is responsible for discovering and launching some of the biggest names in music, like Katy Perry, Kid Rock and Lord, as the founder and CEO of Lava Records. He's a dedicated animal lover with a fabulous book out based on his beloved bulldog, Lulu, called Lulu is a Rhinoceros, which my daughter loves, by the way. But there can be no doubt he'll be remembered for his work giving a voice to the innocent as a founder of The Innocence Project and his podcast, Wrongful Conviction, Jason Flom. Thank you. What a great introduction. You know, and uh, I am actually a founding board member of the Innocence Project. I'm not the founder, but you know, I've certainly been there for almost from the beginning. You have indeed. You have indeed. And you, when you arrived on Shaking the Stirred, you immediately commented that we were sort of having morning drinks, which, and you seem surprised. Well, it was actually, you know, to be, I've got to correct myself with this, you know, the this clock sprung forward yesterday, right? right so it's correct. not morning. It would have been. It would have been. A day earlier, but now it's, you know. And as we like to say on this show, it's four o'clock somewhere. And Tom, it is in fact four o'clock in the UK. It is. So what are we drinking, Tom? We're drinking, you know, today we were going to, Nigel and I were were thinking of of tailor making our cocktails to our guests. And you were actually going to be the the sort of the first guest that we're going to tailor make up. And we came up with, last night we sat there and and came up with a bunch of um, names for these things. We had the Mosseltoff cocktail. Um, the Mosseltoff cocktail. That's hilarious. The Flom Flom Bay. And the Lulu. And the Lulu. But then after all of that, because of the traffic, we decided to go with a gin and tonic. Yeah. Oh and a vodka God. tonic. Sorry, old boy. The list of ingredients was it, too, too extensive. It went from the sublime to the mundane very quickly, didn't it? <laughs> it did, I'm uh, afraid. What was you it? Got... The Mosseltoff cocktail is incredible. I know. Well, just wait for that one. We, we have that all worked out. So it's going to be coming. Next time we have you on, we promise to have that. I'm going to steal that for the Church of Rock and Roll. That's incredible. You I'm, see I've what's just happening? announced it on the air. I'm going to go ahead. It's going to be theft in broad daylight. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I would expect gonna, nothing well, less from you. Absolutely. I'm now, I feel like I've, I'm innocent of this. Fossil top cocktail. What was your other one? You got yeah, any more good yeah, ideas? This is what we do when we start. <laughs> we were last night just thinking, maybe it's a bit dangerous. I don't know. It's going to be, yeah, it'll go well with the high balls to hell we're going to be. But you know, when I announced it as well, everyone was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Damn it. You know, one of the first rules of comedy is if it's funnier than it is in bad taste, you go with it. And I think that falls squarely on the right side of history. Good, there so, we go. You know what I mean? Just... Yeah, don't even, don't hold back. Dunny, we're not holding back. Cheers, by the way. Welcome. We've come too far to only come this far. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Right? That's what I'm saying. All Mm. right, here we go. I can't believe you guys are such a bad influence on me. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Don't don't listen to your trainer. (laughs) Drinking in the morning is what it's all about. Ah, so it is delicious. Jason. I, 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 when I, you know, I know you, I've interviewed you before. You've come on my serious show before, Gentleman's Code. When I sort of I dig into you, there's sort of you seem to be two people or three people or four people. You have sort of multiple lives that go on at once, it seems. And you know, you have your personal interests, and you know, leather designer. You work with Christian Benner, and you have wrongful conviction, which is really sort of saving the world in many respects, or at least making us all wake up and realize the injustice that's going on all too often in broad daylight over and over again. And then simultaneously, you're sort of in the record world discovering talent 
how did these, how, you know, who is Jason Flom, I guess, is the question. Well, obviously, I'm schizophrenic, but the in, in hopefully in a good way. Um, and yeah, I loved your show, Gentleman's Code. I mean, it was, uh, other than the fact that it was, obviously, there was no um, liquid substances there. That so, was you the know, problem. I'm, yeah, but I'm, I'm glad you fixed that. So now it's perfect. But um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had, an, I had a moment, I guess it was three Mondays ago. Um, I was flying back from L.A., and I thought, wow, what a crazy week I just had because I had literally started Monday morning on death row in Texas and ended on Sunday night in the front row at the Grammys. And I was like, when it comes to juxtaposition, that's pretty extreme. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is. But it was an amazing week. I mean, and Although I'm very... some of the performances at the Grammys felt, you know, felt pretty ghastly or you know, dreadful to me anyway. You're actually going to draw that analogy. <laughs> I don't think you can go there. Yeah, that, that one, he crossed the line. Yeah, Tom, do something. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, it, but I feel very lucky, I mean, to be able to have a foot in both worlds and to be able to make a difference in a way that, uh, you know, I call it selfish altruism. You know, I mean, I, I do this, and I think all altruism is selfish to some degree. I agree, actually. Yeah. Enough, that's some, one of my golden rules of, of altruism. But that's okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care if you want to go build a house for someone in, uh, you know, in a third world country and then you want to post it on Instagram, knock yourself out. If it makes you, if it gives, you know, or if it, whatever kind of joy you derive from it, who cares? Um, there's nothing really bad about that. It's, um, well, I think that's what makes people do it. I mean, I, I don't know how often I've said it. I, people, I, I know I raise eyebrows when I mention this. I'm like, look, you will feel better for it. Even with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, I've granted so many wishes and I say every time I get up and talk about it, I'm like, I actually feel like my wish is granted every single time because it's so powerful, the, the, the giving back aspect, that you feel amazing. You yeah. don't realize you have a wish that needed granting, but actually. Yeah, listen, I've always wanted, I've always had this um, sort of burning desire to help the helpless, so to speak. And, and I don't mean that in any sort of condescending way, but, you know, I can't think of any any situation in which someone could be more helpless than to be stuck in our gulag system of, of injustice in America where, you know, you're one of the 2.2, 2.3 million people uh, locked up in this country, anonymous, um, you know, no, no voice, no, I mean, holding on to hope has got to be, it becomes a really tricky thing. And so to be able to, you know, and, and by the way, there are more losses than wins, right? And it's super frustrating. I wish I could, you know, take the whole system, turn it upside down, shake all the prisons and everyone go home and then we'll go get the ones that really belong here. We'll start all over again, right? Because what are the odds on that? I mean, what, what are the odds on, on how many people, um, are, meant to, are sort of guilty versus innocent, do you think, in jail? Well, obviously nobody knows. But the way, um, the way I break it down is that the social scientists who study this stuff estimate that somewhere in the 5 to 6% of people in prison in America are, are actually innocent. And then there's a lot of nuance in terms of guilty as well, right? I mean, there's like people who are in for being around somewhere in the vicinity when a crime happened, and we won't even go there. But actually innocent? If you take five or six, five, five or 6%, let's just take the 5% number because it's easier, and you have 1.8 million people in prison in America, meaning the people that were convicted. We're not talking right. in jails yet, no, right? Sure. So that's 90,000 people who are innocent, right? Just innocent as we are of whatever it is that they did and sitting there uh, stuck, you know, and, 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 then, and then you look at the jail population, right, which we have 450,000 people in jail. Everyone in jail has one thing in common. They haven't been convicted yet. Right. So or if maybe they've been convicted, but they haven't been processed into prison. But most of them haven't right, been convicted right, of any sure. crime. So it's hard to argue that less that, that, that less than half of them are actually innocent. So then you start with another big number, which is over 200,000. So by my estimation, we have between 250 and 300,000 mm -hmm. people locked up in a jail cell right now. 
for no reason An whatsoever. Innocence Project is essentially set up to help free those people, get them out. Well, the Innocence Project is a, is, has a number of, of things that we do, right? I mean, the, it was set up by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld when, about 26 years ago, 27 years ago, when it became known that DNA could be used to solve crimes, right? It could be used to prove guilt or innocence without sure. any doubt, right? Because... I saw one case recently. I was reading in the, about the, the Beatrix Six. It's called. Um, there, was, there was an article in New Yorker magazine where they identified these six people had confessed to this crime, and it turned out it wasn't any of them, right? Which is a strange thing too. False confessions are right. so crazy. I remember I think, that too. Yeah, I think five of them confessed, and the other one was convicted. Anyway. And then it turned out it was this other guy who was a serial rapist murderer guy. And they said in the article that the odds of this being wrong were one in 951 quintillion to one. Like, who even knew what a quintillion was until now, right? I mean, you need to make us another stronger drink if we're going to try to figure that one out. <laughs> I was going to say, I think you've already been drinking. Jesus. I mean, it's nuts. So um, so with DNA, they found out that they were able to um, to prove guilt or innocence beyond any, uh, not only reasonable doubt, but beyond any doubt, in crimes in which there's a, an, any exchange of physical, you know, there's wow. any physical violence. Not if you shoot somebody from a tower down in this, you know what I mean? Like, but in any stabbing or, or, or rape or any, any crime in which there was a struggle, we're exchanging DNA. We've exchanged DNA already, just uh, shaking hands. Sure. So, um, so they came along and, and, you know, now we're up to, uh, you know, hundreds of exonerations and dozens of legislative changes, moreover, that we use, the, we use each case to try to drive changes that will help at a macro level. How, how, how do so many innocent people end up in, in jail in America? I mean, you know, the land of the free, all the rest of it. And we have people just sort of, it seems like such a high number. What is the problem with the, with our process? There's lots of problems. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I only learned the other day. I'm learning, I'm learning all the time uh, still after 26 years of doing this or 25 years of doing this. You know, the other day I learned that in almost every country, well, every country I know of, every Western country, some Eastern countries, if you falsely confess to a crime, which is surprisingly common, right? 25% of the first 150 uh, DNA exonerations were people who had confessed to crimes that they didn't commit. But why on earth would you do that? For what, I mean, why? I mean, just because you're threatened or you're scared? Is that what it is at that moment? You just, you're going to commit, you're going to say, I did it? Or? Yeah, I mean, there's a psychological pro- protocol called the Reed technique that is designed to elicit confessions. Um, and there's a whole good cop, bad cop thing. We've all heard about that. Sure. Sometimes that physical violence is used in some of these cases. In some of the cases, it's just uh, people get to a point where they get so um, trapped in that little airless room that they feel like there is no way out other than to confess and that they, you know, that maybe it'll get sorted out later because no one would possibly believe that you did something that you didn't do in the first place. But the memory is such an odd thing because I interviewed a woman actually on Saturday who's going to be on my show coming up named Kenzie Snyder. And she was a 19-year-old girl and exchange student in South Korea. She's from America. And her roommate was uh, beaten and uh, stomped and beaten to death. And um, she had no blood on her. She, there was no reason to suspect that she would have ever done this. They had no dispute between them. They didn't know each other well. They hadn't known each other very long at all. She had no history of mental illness or violence or, or arrest of any kind. And again, she had no, there was no physical evidence. So, of course, they didn't arrest her. She came back to America and a year later 
Three FBI agents showed up in her town of West Virginia and asked her to come meet them, and they interrogated her for three days. At first, they started off as her friend. They said, listen, we just want to, we really want to solve this case. We think you might be able to give us some details. So just we need you to write down everything you can remember. Tell us everything you can remember. And then they built a trap because a year later, you don't remember everything correctly. And then the second day, she actually said she actually brought ice cream the second day because she thought she was helping them. And then somewhere during the course of the questioning the second day, it became clear that they considered her a suspect. And here her, imagine you're a 19, 20-year-old girl. There's three FBI agents. You grow up respecting law enforcement, particularly the FBI. You're American, they're American. This happened in Korea. Like all of it is sort of this discombobulating, Absolutely. right? And then she says at some point, well, should I get a lawyer? And they said, well, listen, if you get a lawyer, you know, we're not going to be able to say that you're cooperating. That's going to be bad for you, you know, like – you want to cooperate, right? And she's like, well, yeah. So she didn't, like, they cocked her out of getting a lawyer. And by the third day, she confessed. And it's crazy. She said that she still has to this day. She's been, she, she, by the way, she was 10, 10 months in jail in America, extradited to Korea, several months in jail in Korea. And ultimately, she was tried and acquitted. They appealed it. She was tried and acquitted in the higher court. And then she was tried and acquitted in the Supreme Court of, of Korea. She's as, as, as innocent as you could be. Um, I mean, it's totally and utterly outrageous. But she she says that she actually has two different memories now, a black and white one and a color one. In one of them, she did it. In one of them, she didn't. But we know she didn't. But she doesn't even know. And, you know, people have come out of that interrogation room in, in many cases believing that they did the crime that they didn't do. What are the tactics that the police are using to convince people to, to literally change their mind? I mean, what, what's the worst tactics you've seen? Well, here's the problem, right? Let's take physical violence out of the equation. And if you talk to Johnny Hincapier, who's been on my show, who was in prison for 25 years for a, a murder, a, a very famous murder case in New York, the tourist murder where the family from Utah was going to the U.S. Yes, Open. Yes, I remember it. And they were, they were, the mom was killed on the subway. Uh, the son was killed on the subway. Brian Watkins trying to defend his mother. Um, and in his case, he was beaten in the police station and they threatened to kill him. And he said, you know, as he'll say to you, well, why did I confess? Why wouldn't I confess? They told me they were going to kill me. He's like, mm. so I thought my only way out of here is to, you know, confess and then get it sorted out later because, you know, so there's that. But in the psychological... Is that, is that common? I mean, is that a common excuse or is that a common reason? You hear things like that? I mean, police brutality and they're, they're literally scared for their life when they get arrested? Well, there have been. I mean, in Chicago, there was, you know, dozens, over, over 100 cases in which we know that they were taking uh, suspects, only black males, to a warehouse. They wouldn't even take them to the police station. They were torturing them like Abu Ghraib style until they confessed, Electric, electrocuting them, you know, to their genitals, putting bags over their head and beating them with phone books and all sorts of stuff until they confessed. So that's, you know, in certain places that was a common practice. But it's more common for them to basically, well, first of all, take start with the fact that they're allowed to lie, right? So they pick up Tom and they bring him in and they say, listen, um, you know, they're talking to you. And at first you're like, you're not sure you are even a suspect, whatever. They gradually work you over psychologically. They have a whole way of going in and out of the room, good cop, bad, all this other stuff. They get closer, they get farther away. This is all scripted pretty much. And then they go, listen... You keep saying you didn't do it, but we have photograph. We have a video. Like there was a video on the lamppost that took that we saw you on the video, and we have a guy next door who uh, said he did it with you. I mean, and he's implicated you. So the best thing for you to do to save yourself is going to be implicate him. This is what they did with the Central Park Five. They used all mm -hmm. of the. They said all these other guys said you did it. You might as well say they did it. Otherwise, you're going to take the fall. You could get the death penalty. They're allowed to lie. That's the problem. Like in other most other countries, they're not allowed to lie. 
But here we can, they can lie all they want. And so they, it gets to a point where you start questioning either your own sanity or your chances of getting out of there and you feel like you need help. And they go, listen, we want to be your friends. We want to be on your side here, but we know you did it. So the best thing for you to do is help us. Tell us some stuff we need to know, and then we'll go easy on you. We'll tell the prosecutor you cooperate, and that's it. You're done. I mean, once you confess. And there's no coercion laws. I mean, there's nothing against coercion, police, you know, coercion. No, that's all legal here. And it's crazy, too. You know, in, in, I, did, I just learned this this weekend uh, when the Kenzie ca uh, case, because I was talking with Saul Kasson, who's a distinguished professor of psychology at John Jay and a, 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 probably the world's leading expert on false confessions. And in other countries, if you confess under duress in a situation like this, and then you walk out and you go, no, I want to retract that confession. It's retracted, right? You, they can't use it against you in court. Here, you walk out, you go, no, I didn't do, I mean, that's not, you know, I just- It's too late. Too late, no, that's it. And it's well, the most powerful evidence there are, is. Are there countries that you've come across or that you think would are sort of a shining star on what we should be doing? Is there any sort of system out there that you think is sort of working or has got a much better system in place? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think that you could pick almost any country and you'd find that they have a, uh, a more sane system of justice in general just because they don't have the same sort of mass incarceration problem that we do, right? Like we have more people in prison in America than, every, than, than Russia and China combined, God. right? We, have, we lock people up in America at five times the rate per capita of all of Western, of Western Europe. Right. So we have more people in prison in America just for drugs than everyone in prison mm -hmm. in Western Europe for everything. And how, how, how are the percentage of the entire population of how many, what percentage is uh, a, a consists of people who are basically mentally ill? I mean, people who shouldn't be there. There's because you know, uh, there's going to be the five or six percent or, or whatever pardoned criminals who belong in jail. There are always people who do belong in jail. But how many? What is the percentage of people who who really? I mean, I've heard estimates that 35% of people in, in prison in America have oh. diagnosable mental illness. Um, and of course, when you put them in there, you just make it worse. Gonna, right? And if, it, if they haven't got any, then if they haven't got a mental illness, then you're going to get one pretty quickly. And, and, and if you do, then it's a really slippery slope because people who are, uh, are, are mentally ill, many of them are unable to follow orders uh, in the way that is expected when you're in their, our system, uh, uh, locked up in the system here. So as a result, they get penalized lost, further. Lost. Their sentences may get longer. They they may get thrown in the hole. You know, it just gets it's just it just gets worse and worse and worse. And none of it makes any sense. I mean, you know, Senator Jim Webb, who studied the prison system in America and in Japan extensively, and he was no softy. He was, I think, the Secretary of the Navy under Reagan. I mean, he's not like a you know not like a, a hippie, right? You know, yeah, calm. But he said, you know, he studied. He said, you know, what? we lock people up in America at fourteen times the rate per capita that Japan does, but we have the same crime rate. Right. So it obviously is not a deterrent. Mm. Um, so he said, you know, I mean, they, they, at the time we, we were talking, which is. Why are we doing it? Why? You know, that's a great question. I think that the, the war on drugs, you know, is a leading cause of this problem. But how much is this costing us? How much is this costing the taxpayer? It's, per prisoner. It's a stunning amount of money. I mean, in New York City, right, we have Rikers Island, which is literally hell on earth. And the city controller estimated that it costs about $200,000 a year to keep somebody in Rikers Island. If you break that down, that's almost $700 a day, like six fifty dollars a day or something, right? Which is probably similar to the Four Seasons on 57th Street, oh, right? So I mean, simply by improving education. Oh, no, no, literally. But simply by improving education and putting money into, into schools as well and sort of educating people, uh, other than the fact of just not convicting people who are innocent, but actually, you know, getting people to that they're that crime isn't even an option 
I, I feel that you know there's just you, there's so much money being spent on the criminal system here. I just, I, yeah, I just find it mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling, and I mean, it's totally wrong. And this is what I was going to say. Jim Webb said, listen, if you look at these numbers, you can only come to one of two conclusions, which is either Americans are the most evil people in the world and need to be treated much, much worse than other people do and locked up at much higher rates. obviously absurd. Or we're doing it wrong. He's like, right. there's only two ways to look at it. You can't look at it any other way. And, of course, then it gets into – I mean, this, we could talk about this all day and all night, but the fact is that you know, in, in w- many places, especially Western Europe – the prison system is designed for rehabilitation. And people that go into the system, and it's interesting, Kenzie was saying, even in jail in Korea, she said, I was treated as a human being, not here. Um, mm-hmm. She said, uh, uh, you know, and when you talk to, to, to anyone who's got, you know, knowledge of this, um, this, this crazy, uh, uh, bloated uh, criminal injustice system, I call it here, it's all designed for punishment here. There is no rehabilitation. I mean, there's very limited rehabilitation. I mean, and, it's somewhat ironic that, that we are so unforgiving as well as right. a nation that is sort of built on sort of religious backbone. You know, that, that ultimately we do not forgive people. In fact, we, we, despite even when they're proven innocent, we still sort of look at them with the side eye. Oh, yeah. You know, or if they've spent their time, we give them the side eye. We give them, the, you know, we're not employing you. We're not working with you. I mean, I even know, just forget about being a prisoner, even if you've been... <laughs> to war and you're a soldier it's hard to get employment because people are scared of you don't trust you uh you know it, it's it's something very wrong i think with that part of society that we're not forgiving enough yeah i call it the second punishment i mean and it's i think it's a uniquely american problem we stigmatize people in in so many ways um you know whether it's having to check a box when you do a, a job application or trying to get housing or trying to you know, almost anything. I mean, it's like it's it just doesn't make any sense. You, you can not being able to vote, right? What is that? Not being. What do you mean not being? Able, what, what, why not? What, I mean, mm. so you maybe you did a, a you know a burglary or something, and now you come out and you're not allowed to. That doesn't make any sense. Now Florida just restored the right to vote to felons, which is a huge change. And um, how did they do that? How did they did they, was it? Did they get a backlash from the grassroots? There was a referendum. So, you know, 25 states in America have referendum systems where you're able to, if you can get 100, I think it's in, in California, there's 100,000 signatures on a, on a petition, okay. you can put something on a ballot, and then the public votes. So the public voted in Florida to restore the right to vote to felons, which is a huge thing because Florida is such a strange place, right? I mean, and anyone listening in Florida, I mean, if you don't already know what I'm talking about, but anyway, <laughs> um, but I mean, in Florida, if you ran... Chicken shit against chicken salad, right? And I'm a vegan, but who cares for the sake of this argument, right? But if you ran chicken shit against chicken salad in Florida, the vote would be 50.5 to 49.5. It's just the way it is, right? right. It's like, I don't understand, but that's the way it is. So in Florida, the fact that now felons can vote can be a real deciding factor in so many important races. And, um, and so I think that's going to that's gonna create a great change. But these... These, the, our system is broken in so many ways. To go back to your previous question, I mean, the, these wrongful convictions happen and these these crazy sentences happen because the system is is too. There's too much going in. There's too much power concentrated on one side. Right? You have defense lawyers, who, uh, most of them are public defenders, who are overworked, underpaid. Some of them are underqualified. You see cases, death penalty cases, where you have a divorce lawyer taking the case or something. You know, like crazy shit that you guys can't be. Mm-hmm. I mean. A guy, the guy visited on death row in Texas, Rob Will, his his appeal was handled by a woman 
who had Parkinson's. And not only that, but she submitted a 29-page brief in a, in a death penalty case that was copied word for word and typo for typo from a brief she had submitted on behalf of another client who was a serial killer. She just changed the names. Like, what in the fuck oh. is going and, on and here? how do they get away oh. with it? I mean, surely there's comeuppance for the for the for the lawyer, or for the judges, she, or for the system. I, I believe she's been disbarred, but if not, I mean, she's very sick, so I don't even know if she's still alive. Um, but you know, that, that I mean, that's just one of the many, many, many problems in his case. I mean, his case is riddled with. I mean, and here's this so crazy, right? This is a death penalty case, and this is an extraordinary. This guy, Rob Will, I will tell you, he is one of the ten most incredible people I've met ever. I mean, the guy is so brilliant in so many ways, and this is, and not just because I'm, you know, I, mm-hmm. I have, you know, empathy for him, but I mean, the guy is a, an accomplished painter and poet. He's a, a master yogi. He's a certified paralegal, and he could teach an Ivy League course in philosophy, uh, art history, classical music. He's trying to teach me on the phone through the glass about subquantum mechanics. I'm like, you got the wrong guy. I dropped out of college when I was a junior. Like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, right? But, I mean, the guy is a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's been on death row for 17 years. They're trying to execute him. And, it, and this is how nuts our system is. Federal Judge Keith Ellison said there is a, a, a preponderance of evidence of your innocence. And I hope that the state will take another look at it, but my hands are tied. He said there are grave errors in every phase of this proceeding. I mean, surely, so what happens then at that point? Well, what do you do? I mean, surely that just, someone says that, a judge of, of his ilk and, and all the rest of it, if all the evidence proves, what, I mean, I just don't understand. Like, what's that next step? Well, the next step, unfortunately, is that he sent it back to the state courts for review. And the fact is that in, in our system here, it's very strange because due to a, a, a provision in the Crime Bill of 1996 called EDPA, it made it very difficult for federal judges to overturn state court decisions. That's why Brendan Dassey's still in prison. Did you see making a murderer? Yeah. Right. What the fuck is he doing in prison? That poor kid. Talk, now, yeah, oh, we, now we're touching all the bases, right? He's mentally ill. He, I mean, he's, well, he's mentally, I don't know if he's mentally ill, you know, but he is clearly challenged, Absolutely. right? His IQ is 60 or 70. Um, he was a teenage boy. He falsely confessed. Um, he is abundantly innocent and there's no mystery to it and yet he can't get relief because the federal courts are 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 basically you know tied to this um, very very high standard that must be met almost an impossible standard to meet in order to overturn a state court that has to be fixed too i mean how could what, what must it be like for rob to sit there like you're sitting there with this face on like wait a minute i don't understand a federal no, judge just... says you're innocent and you're still in de- on death row but that's the way it is i can read you the quote it's nuts. Are we making any improvements whatsoever? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, we're making improvements. So what are we doing? What, give us a ray of hope, for God's sakes, before everyone runs for the hills and who, or, or starts and swimming. Who, and who are making the improvement? I mean, who's, who's championing? I mean, apart from, obviously, you know, your podcast, things like that, which keep, keeps the stuff alive and keeps it relevant. But to actually, you know, act, to, who, who actually kind of takes the next step and actually, you know, takes some action to actually change things. Well, there have been a lot of changes in the states recently, even in very you know conservative states in the Deep South. Louisiana is de-incarcerating. Um, Texas has passed some 
Uh, I mean, there's, it's still a very troubled state in terms of their approach to criminal justice, but they've passed some reforms. Um, even There's even some signs of hope in Oklahoma. Uh, but there are changes being made all over the place, being driven by organizations like the Innocence Project, but so many others as well. And those changes you know, deal not only with, with wrongful convictions, but with mandatory sentencing laws. You know, we overturned, there used to be a law in Michigan that was overturned not that long ago where you could be sentenced to life in prison with no hope for parole for a first-time drug offense. Life. Like you die in prison. And, you know, that's been overturned. Families Against Mandatory Minimums, a wonderful organization, FAMM.org. So it's state by state, ultimately. Well, well, It's not a federal level. We can't just come in and go, guys, we need to have a situation, a a rule here. If someone's basically, you know, these are the levels you have to hit. Doesn't matter where you are. Well, there's there's you know there's state laws and there's federal laws, right? So there's ninety percent, about ninety percent of the people in prison in America are in the system or in states, state facilities, and then the other ten percent are in federal. So each state can make changes on their own, and then um, legislatively, or in some states by referendum, and then the federal uh, and, and you know the, the, the federal so what is the worst right? state to be arrested in? Oklahoma. And what is the best state to be arrested in? Uh, are you thinking about doing something illegal? I'm, I, I'm, ju- you know, I'm just curious. If so, at least invite me and Tom. You know what I mean? We, got, <laughs> we have a little adventurous spirit. You're going to rob a bank? I just, you I'm just, you know, I'm just wanted to you know, put some money on this, uh, housing prices after Colorado, the show in those different areas. So is there a state that is perhaps the, has the, the best laws or I, the most I, fair laws? I think that depends on what kind of crime you're, you're thinking, thinking about committing. committing. Yeah, you know, like st- different states have wildly different laws on drugs, for instance. You know what I mean? You could have, which is a, sort of a crazy thing, but you could be just cross over a border mm. and you could be arrested for something that's legal in the other state. Um, but that's the way our system is set up. So, um, so I don't know how to answer you as far as what the best state is. And, and with Oklahoma, I'm saying Oklahoma because Oklahoma leads the nation in the, it has a dubious distinction of leading the nation in incarcerating the highest percentage of its, of its citizens. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think, because this, mm. this, this is, um, you know, I know it's shaken and stirred, but I'm going to go to the gentleman's code now. But the thing is, we also have to address the fact that in America, we have 4.4% of the world's total population, but we have 25% of the world's prison population. But the dirty little secret that I don't think gets enough attention, and we just had a, a Women's Day last week, was that we have 33% of the world's female prison population. Then go to Oklahoma where they double that. So if Oklahoma were a country, two out of every three women in the world in prison would be in Oklahoma. Wow. So crazy. it's the numbers are batshit mm. fucking crazy, mm. but they're true, and it's nuts. So... Yeah, don't get arrested in Oklahoma, whatever you do. Stay out of Oklahoma in general, probably, and don't get arrested there. I mean, you know, people who are listening to this, they could also think that we're sort of just championing people who are in jail, people who are in prison. And obviously, there are lots of guilty people in in jail. The majority of them are guilty, right? Yes. Right. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, is there a danger that you're out there sort of trying to prove innocence and that you actually might get people off who are guilty? It's a very well. First of all, with with DNA, there is no danger of that. I None, mean, zero, 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 zero. Yeah, hundred percent chance that they're. I'm playing devil's advocate here, but I'm just sort of thinking there are people out there who are like, oh come on, they must have done something. Where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, all of this sort of stuff. Like you grow up with these ideas, and and again, 
there's nothing in my mind that could be possibly worse. And we've all seen the movies, and unfortunately, we so often refer to our life through movies, and you know, which are ridiculous. But you know, there's that chance you think, God, if he is, in, if he is guilty. Well, I mean, yeah, Shawshank Redemption is not that far from where it, where it's at in a lot of places now. I mean, still, this is what this that is was what the movie I was referencing. As yeah, well. I mean, it was an incredible, incredible movie, but. I think you have to start with the idea that it is not a deterrent to crime. We do not have a crime wave. In fact, we have historic lows in crime in so many places in America. There is no threat. The threat is that if we keep people, if we keep locking people up when they come out, there's there's a higher, much higher likelihood that they will commit crimes, right? And and that goes to bail too, right? Like we have this crazy system of bail where you can, if, you know, we have one system if you're rich and one system if you're poor, which is a fundamental inequity that needs to be addressed, right? And what I mean by that is, if you were to get arrested today, you look like some guy that shoplifted or did whatever you did. Um, which I know you're already thinking about committing a crime wave because we've already you've already admitted to <laughs> but that. But not in here. Oklahoma. So not in Oklahoma, which is great. That's at least 49 states. You know, I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't do it in Hawaii either. Probably harder to get out. You know, I mean, unless you're really a great swimmer, <laughs> pretty or good surfer swimmer. or something. Yeah, you look like a swimmer. So, um, but the uh, the fact is that because of the bail system, where we have this 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 horrible system of money bail, where if you get picked up for jumping a turnstile or whatever, and you don't have the money to post bail, even if it's $500 or $1,000, Khalif Browder being the most extreme, horrible example, but there's so many examples, then you go to jail. Right. And you sit there for a long time until you decide that you're either going to plead guilty so you can go home or you're going to wait and go to trial, which could take months. It could take years. She's insane. And, well, and what, jumping a turnstile, yeah, literally. Yeah. yeah, well, look at Khalif Browder, right? He was accused of stealing a backpack. He was 16 years old. No violence. They said he took somebody else's backpack. His bail was set at $2,500. His family didn't have $2,500. He was in Rikers Island for three years. He was beaten by guards. He was beaten by inmates. He was locked in solitary confinement for two years. And then they dropped the charges. So he never stole anybody's backpack. He just didn't have money to go home. And, and there was he didn't get any money for that either. Though. He didn't get any sort of... Did he get a reward or anything? No, any no, no, of course not. He got nothing. Compensation and, of because, any sort? No, because he was never convicted, so he couldn't even sue on that basis. But it doesn't matter. I mean, the, 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 the poor kid. No, of course it doesn't matter. But that's a good, this is an interesting point because I think, you know, obviously I've, we've talked about this before, but I, it still stuns me that someone could be, you know, convicted of a crime they didn't commit years later, having spent a majority of their life or a massive portion of it behind bars, and there's no compensation for, and there's no one takes responsibility other than a sort of perhaps a sorry, and not even hardly that. There's stories that I've read where they just literally push them out the door and leave them standing on the side of the streets, sort of with nothing in their pockets, not, no hope, yeah. not a phone call, and they're just all of a sudden innocent and standing there. I mean, it's so outrageous. That in itself is a crime. It is, and you'll hear, I mean, listen to Wrongful Conviction, my podcast, and you'll hear these stories, and each one is crazier than the other one. I mean, every time I think I've heard it all, then I hear another story, the story of Susan King, or this one, or that, whichever one, and you just go, Lorenzo Johnson, right? Lorenzo Johnson, let's just take him as an example, right? The guy was convicted of a murder that happened in, I think it was uh, Harrisburg or Allentown, it was in Pennsylvania, on a night when he was in New York City. And had he had a decent lawyer, he would have been able to prove that he was in New York City. This never would have gone any further. But he was convicted of this murder, and um, he had no prior record, and sentenced to God knows life or how many years in prison. And after 16 and a half years, he proved he was innocent and was out and, and working. He'd been out for 148 days when the phone rings, and it was his lawyer who said, who was crying. 
And he said, you got to come to the office. And he goes, why? What's going on? He goes, you got to go back to prison. And he was like, what? Uh, uh, and they, they, had, they had appealed the reversal of his conviction. And it had been overturned by the highest court in the land. And they ruled that he had to go back to prison. It took another five and a half years for him to prove again that his conviction was wrong. It was overturned again. And then they came back and said, we're going to try you again unless you take a plea. Why? Who's the person who has the vendetta against him? The prosecutor in this case, right? I mean, it's like they don't like being proven wrong in many cases. And, and so, so poor Lorenzo now was faced with this, this choice of like, it's sort of like, you know, I mean, it's a Sophie's choice, right? So his mm -hmm. mom was sick. He said, I can't go back to prison anymore. I've been there for 22 years. He took a plea. So that means you can't sue, right? You can't sue because you had to plead guilty in order to go home. What a system, right? Where you plead yeah. innocent, you go to prison, and you plead guilty, and you go home. I mean, literally, we're it's fucking yeah. Alice in Wonderland, right? Except it's not—it's not cute. Wow. It's not cute at all. So, yeah. So these stories are insane, and it's—it's it's, you know, it's amazing because to, I get asked these questions so frequently. What happens? Do the exonerees get get compensated? Most of them don't, is the answer. And even the ones that do, there's a wide range of of you know, uh, uh, from very little to you know to a substantial amount. No, no number would be enough. Um, and then in the cases where these prosecutors go rogue. Um, there's no real, there's no real consequence to them either. So, you know, that's, there's, it's, it's, we have a reverse incentive, right? We have an incentive. Um, and I think most, listen, I'm a person, I believe in law and in laws sure, and system absolutely. of justice. I think we should all want to be safe. You know, um, I think most people in the system are doing the job that they're, you know, paid to do and doing it to the best of their ability. But the bad actors cause a lot of damage, and and there's just such a there's such an imbalance of power in the system, and it's so broken. So I was just saying before is that you know when you're looking to make the streets safer, there's there's tons of research that shows the way to do that is don't lock people up pre-trial, because think about it, when we arrest Tom later for whatever it is, hopping a turnstile, like I said. And he goes to jail even for three days or four days. When he comes out, he's lost his job, right? He's lost. He may have lost his housing because, you know, it might be in temporary housing or whatever it is. And you assume he's there guilty for weeks. by everyone. Assume guilty or not. But, I mean, the real consequences are whatever his life was like before, it's worse yeah. now. Mm -hmm. Whatever problems were there are worse now. And it's much more likely. And this is proven statistically. There was a, stunned on, done, a study done by the University of Pennsylvania. The Quattron School at the University of Pennsylvania that showed that people who were locked up even just for a few days, you know, for these minor offenses before they're, you know, adjudicated, right? Instead of being sent home with a court date, which is all you really need, are forty percent more likely to commit a felony in the in the following twelve months than people who were just. That seems like a relatively easy thing to fix. As far as why on earth would we want to lock them up? It's not like we get paid. To lock them up, it costs somebody us money. gets paid. Someone gets paid, but surely it, the amount of money the taxpayer is paying, it, it would make sense for a politician to even, you know, uh, what make, canvas, make the saving. Yeah, make the saving. Two hundred thousand per person. 000. I mean, imagine how much money each state would make back, you know, and taxpayers would not have to pay. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. It does. I mean, but so did legalizing pot, and look how long that took, you know. And it's still, mm. be, it's still, you know, in motion, right? I mean, it's a no-brainer. But you know, well, the how war does, on drugs has failed, isn't it? I mean, that's another. Oh, it's the worst. I mean, I, I think, look, mass incarceration to me is the worst social, social policy disaster in America since slavery, um, if you can even call uh, slavery a social policy, but I guess it was. And and the war on drugs is a huge driver of it, right? War on drugs, my ass. And first of all, when the war on drugs started, Nixon didn't want a war on drugs. And this has been now, the Haldeman came clear on this, right? He said that Nixon didn't want a war on drugs. He wanted a war on black people and hippies, but he couldn't call it that. 
So he invented a crisis, kind of like what's happening now, right? He invented a crisis. That was no crisis. He created the the crisis. Less than 2% of Americans at the time gave, listed it as a concern whatsoever, this drug problem. And then it was even, then he had to take it to another level because what he found was that local police departments didn't care to arrest people for drugs back then. So he had to create these incentives for the local police departments to meet quotas and then be rewarded by giving them, you know, federal grants and all sorts of other stuff. And that's what he did. And now we have situations where you see these, these horrible situations where cops, you know, SWAT teams are kicking in the doors of people looking for some drugs and holding them at gunpoint or, and injuring or even getting to a shootout. And, you know, half the time there's no drugs there anyway. And it's drugs. It's no. just drugs. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just ridiculous. I mean. It's a gateway, isn't it? Jason? Yeah, gateway to what? Maybe a gateway to listening to music, and I sell music. I mean, I'm the, you know, I don't have a selfish motive here, but you know what? I mean, what does pot do? It makes you miss listen to Beatles records and, and eat uh, So how food. do you, how do you juggle between Innocence Project on one hand and your music business on the other? Um, you know, it's I don't know. It all just seems to shake and stir itself out. You know, like I uh, I don't juggle it in a deliberate manner. I don't sit in the in, and map out my week. It all sort of seems to happen in a in an organic way and uh you know interestingly enough the more uh the more time and energy i put into trying to do good uh, the better the record company seems to do as well so you know um i don't know maybe that's rubs, uh, rubs off the good the good will good feeling rubs off maybe it's kismet i have no idea but you know right now we're having a great run we you know we have this band um my company lava records is greta van fleet is our latest um our latest one, and, and it's you know they're sort of changing the ch- changing the world for the better. I mean, they're bringing back that 1970s rock sound that I loved so much growing up, and and they're headlining huge places and winning Grammy awards and performing on Saturday Night Live, and so that's really exciting. And um, you know, how do you when you discover someone like Lord or Katy Perry or Kid Rock? I mean, what is it? What is that moment? When you meet that person, that you're like, okay, this person's, this, they, they've got something. I mean, that magic touch. Do you know it, or is it just the numbers game? No, no. Sometimes I know it, it. I mean, I have this crazy instinct. I don't know why. Um, Katy Perry didn't even know if she could sing. Did you? No, when no. You, when I met her, I just met her. I mean, I was, I was told by a woman. Um, she's clearly very cute, so that that doesn't count. Yeah, but there's a lot of people that are cute in <laughs> the know. world. You know what I mean? So that's not it. Um, you know, you guys are sort of cute, but I have no desire to sign either one of you. To be honest <laughs> Damn it! You, he brought his know? guitar as well. No, but I mean, I just not. You know, I mean, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna continue to. If it's okay with you, I'm gonna continue looking and see if I can find a better option. If not, yeah. maybe I'll circle back. Also, go me on with, the the, with the youth. Go but, with the youth as well. Yeah, yeah. No, you're on the triangle. I'm it's pretty particularly good. good on the triangle. And you're gonna say that you're gonna play the recorder. Right? I know. I know. What's what coming. I'm, not even gonna, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm going to stop talking. He's very good at jingling yeah. ice in a glass. Ah, that's yeah, that's concussion. actually, and he's and he's paid for it, so it's not bad. You know what I mean? What a job! What a life you guys have. No, totally. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I hear it. Sometimes you could see it. Sometimes you just feel it. Um, you know, listen. I have this uh, new artist. I released. We released um, two weeks ago, named Evan Conrad, who I, I do I believe is an actual genius. I mean, this guy. It's it's so extraordinary what he's doing, and um, it's it's really fun. It's still fun. I mean, this is listen. July thirty first is going to be my fortieth birthday in the music industry. I uh, I started when I was eighteen, and so that makes me what like thirty seven now or something. And I, you know, so um, but it's really um, it's it's fun when you bump into somebody um, who is uh, who is such an extraordinary, and it's like it's amazing. I mean, there's sort of like with Lord, you had this feeling too, like she's channeling this from a different planet or universe or something right this music is going through her or through evan conrad now into 
you know, into this like beautiful orb that I get to be lucky to be a part of. And it's just sort of a, it's an amazing thing. I mean, this uh, has the whole digital era just I mean obviously it's affected music enormously and there was a one point which I think a lot of us were questioning how anyone would make any money in music has that affected the kind the, the way the artists perform and the way they write their music putting albums together and things like that yeah, it's a very good question I mean I think a lot of stuff has changed since back in the day and it's it's in a certain way it's unfortunate because you know growing up when I did when when you know when we did whatever you know it was, the album was a thing right it was a thing you would hold it in your hands sure. you know you would clean pot on it you know it would do a, it was like a very it was like a thing and you would look at the artwork and even the inside sleeve was cool and you watch it spin on the record player but I'm still a vinyl guy yeah, yeah me too same. but then but but also you got a chance to really get into the the whole you got to see the whole movie right instead of just the opening credits right right no, I mean absolutely. and so in you know I wonder if today Pink Floyd if they came out today I mean I think that the cream always rises to the top and I think they would have still they would still reach their mark but it it's harder now because it was something you really had to experience the whole thing you know and well now there are so many more people because you can make a record in your in your in your bedroom can't you. There, there are, and and it's it's amazing. You know, there's so many songs, right? This, you know, like you said, because it's so easy to make them, and it's easier to distribute them now too, right? You can sign up with one of these services and get it on. Uh, but you know, it's a, it's it's. I, I always get a kick out of this. There's actually a site called Forgotify.com, and on Forgotify, you can listen to the songs, which is almost twenty percent of all the songs on Spotify oh, yeah. that have never been heard by anyone. <laughs> wow! <laughs> right? Wow. Like, can you imagine? Spotify. Like, even if even if you two guys made a record, somebody maybe. I mean, you guys. Would one of you listen to it in the studio? Yeah, see Heck that yeah. we have a fan. We have one. Tom fan. wrote the so, theme music to to the show to Shaken and Stirred is written and performed by Tom. There well, you go. And my friend Bill Lovelady, who again I consider to be a genius. Bill oh, Lovelady, how about that for a name in music? Well, he was yeah. He he, the guy who wrote the the the, the soundtrack for our thing. He but he's gone. He's been platinum in Norway with a reggae song in the eighties. He was on top of the pops, and he's written a symphony. And wow. he's a classical guitarist. I mean, he's he's a sort of genius. He's all over the place with his music. Anyway, yeah. Reggae, classical. No, no, no. But I mean, yeah, but he's just so. What about you? What about you, Tom? Do you prefer? Are you? What are you? Uh, you I mean, you, I look at your artists. You've got all kinds of artists: rock and pop. And is there one type of music that you like yourself more than another? I'm a rock guy, you know. I mean, I can appreciate a pop song, but I'm a rock guy. I love hip hop music too. I don't, I don't work in it because it's sort of not, you know. I just don't have the the wherewithal to. Are you a musician yourself? I'm a frustrated musician. I was. I'm not now. I wouldn't even call myself that. You know, now I'm. I, what I, do you play? I did play the guitar. You know. Um, sort of adequately. You know, it was when I discovered it was around the time the first Van Halen record came out. Um, that I realized that uh, it wasn't my destiny. You know, I heard that thing and I was like, oh, forget it. I might as well try to dunk a basketball with my three-inch Jewish vertical leap. And I just, you know, it's just not going to happen unless they lower the rim. And they weren't lowering the rim on the music side. So, But it was around that time that I started working at Atlantic when I was 18 and I realized that I could be, you know, I could follow my dad's advice. My dad's advice was do whatever you want to do. Try to be the best at it, but just make the world a better place. He said, "If if you do that, that that's the meaning of that's the real meaning of success. It's the only one that matters." I was like, "Okay, Dad, I got that." So I realized I was never going to be the best guitar player, but I thought if I could help other people make it as as stars and I could still be in the game, then that was my goal, and it's um, it's worked out that way, and it's still working out that so way. When so when you find you know. new talent, what and when you, you sign them up, what's that sort of next step? I mean, you know, you, they have a, they have their music, they have their songs producing that album and sort of creating that sound 
How does that happen? How do you specifically kind of, I guess, keep them on brand? Or do you not? Do you just let them go? Well, every situation is different. But in in the case of, I mean, if you take Lord, I mean, she had, uh, she was already working with this wonderful producer named Joel Little. Um, she had made an EP when I first came across her. And then it was only a question of just not changing course, right? It was just like, let's stay with this guy because the sound was incredible. Kept the same producer. You didn't put a producer in. You didn't kind of. No, we talked about it when when the first, because the EP was to be followed by the album. And uh, we talked about it. I mean, there was there were no no shortage of possibilities because she's obviously, a, 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 you know, once in a generation uh, type of talent. But. But you do put producers in so often or not? Well, we, yeah. I mean, I don't put them in because it's obviously the artist has made that decision. It's their career. But we can introduce them and see if it works. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's – every like I said, every situation is different. That one of the things that makes it fun. It's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle, you mm-hmm. know, a musical jigsaw puzzle. And uh, and I still like doing it. So I guess as long as I still like doing it, I'll keep doing it, you know, and as long as somebody still wants me to keep doing it. But I'm, I'm telling you, man. What do you think is your secret source for sort of finding these artists that create these monster hits? I have no idea. I, I really don't know. I mean, it's like it's I – gut instinct. Yeah, it's just instincts, exactly. I mean, you, you sitting in a, do you ever sit in a room and troubleshoot with a kind of, you know, bunch of kind of twenty-five-year-olds, you know, saying, "What, what, okay, what's the sound? What are people listening to now? What do you think's in that? You know, do you think this sounds any good? I mean, do you do that, or do you just, do you just, you know, someone like Katy Perry, you, you hadn't heard her sing? Well, no, but I just, I just, you know, when I met her, I just had that feeling that she was a she star. Was and then when I heard her music, I loved it. The funny thing was when I, you know, I was actually picking up a record that was being dropped by Columbia. And um, she had been dropped by uh, by another label uh, prior to that, and then she was dropped by Columbia, and uh, and I was so excited when I got her music, and I went and played it for my senior staff, and they were like, right, "No, just don't do this." They were like, "This is awful. Like we're doing well, we're turning this dump around because Virgin was a dump back then when I took it over," and I was like, "I, I was like, what?" Really? Oh, man. I was so disappointed. I was so excited to play. I had that feeling like we had when we were kids, and you were the guy that had the hot new record, right? I get to do that now for pay, right? It's the same experience. I'm just an overgrown kid. But in that case, um, I just was crestfallen. I was like, Jesus, nobody likes this. Maybe I'm crazy. So, you know. <laughs> so, but what happened next? Well, then I was, um, I let a sort of a month go by, and then I was in, literally in my garage in Aspen working out, and I was listening to Katie on headphones, and I was like, oh my God, I've been an idiot. This is ridiculous. She's obviously going to be huge. Like, right. And I, so I thought, I hope I didn't blow it, but she was, nobody was calling her back then. I mean, it was like she'd been dropped by two labels already. So I called her up, and you know she was working at this place called Taxi, which was like a, a ironically a demo listening service. And she didn't have a car. I think she was about to lose her phone at that time. She was making ten bucks an hour, and uh, you know I said I said I want to make a deal with you. And then um, and then it was sort of serendipitous because uh, yeah we end, I mean it all it all came together the way it was supposed to. It's funny too because when she made when she made I kissed a girl, I told her that was going to be her first single, and she said it can't be. And I was like, why not? And she goes, because my parents will never speak to me again. You know, because her parents are like <laughs> born again, like missionary, Bible thumping type of people. And I said they'll they'll talk to you after it goes number one. Um, and, and, I'm, and, behold, and did they? Yeah, yeah they're okay. fine. They're, they're, they're fine. They're so so you, you actually grew up in a pretty litigious family, to say the least. Your father created one of the largest law firms in the world. That, that's correct, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, mean he, I, I look at you now. I mean, you, you know, you're, you, you do something very, very different with your life. You go into music business. Was that a sort of an anti-establishment sort of move? But then at the same time, you also you know, uh, work with the Innocence Project and Wrongful Conviction. So you still have that aspect of you. Is that a part of why you do that? Is it because of your background, your family background, your upbringing? 
I think so. I think I, you know, my dad was my hero and my mentor, and I think that I learned uh, so much from him. And I think that that I wouldn't probably be doing that stuff if not for his influence. And then, you know, on the music side, I mean, he got a kick out of it. I, I followed his advice. I did what I thought I could do and be the best at it. And the first platinum record, the first platinum record I ever got was Twisted Sister. And it was Stay Hungry, and it was the Great album band. where he was holding, you know, on the, he had that mm-hmm. obviously outrageous clothes and the hair, and the, he was holding a bone on the cover, right? Like, and a uh, big bone, whatever the hell it was. And, and I gave the record to my dad on the condition that he hang it in his office. So it did. It hung in his office next to these, you know, I know he would have the head of IBM coming in or whoever that was coming to. But it was a great conversation piece, you know. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, so he, he got a kick out of it. He used to call me on Wednesdays when the charts would come out and say, hey, I haven't heard from you today. This record's going in the wrong direction or whatever. You know? yeah. So he actually paid attention. And it was quite funny. I mean, there was no music played in my house when I was growing up. Nobody was a musician. Nobody cared about music. It just wasn't part of the, the, the culture. But I became addicted to it very young. And... You know, grew up on. I mean, I grew up in the really the golden era of, of music, right? Of rock and roll, right? With with you know, I mean, those days you could go to Madison Square Garden once a week and see a genius, right? Mm, I mean, at amazing. least once a week, you know. If and and you know, so so naturally I got hooked, and I grew up on Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Stones, and you know, it was just like one of the Sly and the Family Stone and Queen. And I heard that Led Zeppelin like, never released a single; that they only released albums. Is that is that true? Could be true. I'm not sure. But uh, I've always, I mean, they're my favorite band and I have a big picture of them. It was my 40th birthday gift from my wife, you know, in the house. And yeah, what a what an incredible group they are. I actually got to see them at the garden twice because that's the only good thing about being my age is that, you know, if you were lucky enough to see that, you were lucky enough. But uh, yeah. And, and so how do you feel about Greta Van Fleet? <sighs> Amazing, man. Yeah, it's so fun, right? Robert Plant said they, they he said, they said, somebody said, I forgot to answer what question he was answering, but he said, they are Led Zeppelin, right? And he said it in a nice way. So he's been very, um, he's been very kind to them. And it's yeah, it's not a sound we hear enough these days. Yeah, and it's not. Listen, you know, they grew up on the blues. Zeppelin grew up on the blues. They are not imitating Led Zeppelin. They are in the same, you know, g- general, uh, you know, the genre. They, it, yeah, I mean, they have guitars and bass and keyboards, and it's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's music. It's at the end of the day, it's music, and he sings. I don't know how he does that, where it came from, but it's he's channeling the mm. same magical energy that Robert was, and that's great, you know. And people are responding to it, and that's all you can say. I, I love this sort of channeling of magic. You sort of use this quite a lot, even with Lord. You're like, it's, it's, it comes from somewhere into this magical orb. Right now, you're wearing a T-shirt that says Church of Rock and Roll on it. You, <laughs> tell us about the Church of Rock and Roll. Are they channeling from the Church of Rock and Roll? Yeah. So um, the Church of Rock and Roll, and um, there's a there's an Instagram. You'll have to uh, if you're not following already you should be it's um, of course it's i am church of rock and roll is at, at church of rock and roll and uh and the website as well church of rock and roll.com um but i had this idea to start the church of rock and roll um about three years ago after i watched john oliver do his incredible diatribe about televangelists and my disdain for uh organized religion reached a, a, a zenith and I said, you know what? I've got to start a church. This is ridiculous. And the only the only church I'm qualified to start is the Church of Rock and Roll. The miracle was the trademark was available, so I trademarked it for every category under the sun. And then I know somebody out there is writing down right now. I wonder if he trademarked it for um, lampshades. You know what I mean, like or whatever. <laughs> too, so, too late, he did. I, I think I did. Yeah. So tablecloths. Um, so 
Then I set about trying to figure out what to do with it. I knew from the beginning that it's, it would stand for the things that I believe in. So our first principle is be kind to yourself, to other people, to animals, and the earth. Second one is do whatever you want with your own body as long as you don't hurt anybody else. That goes back to our conversation about drugs. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't pertain only to that. And the third one is marry who you want, what you want, whatever the fuck you want to. So if you'd like to come to our church and you want to marry a potted plant or a gin and tonic or the Statue of Liberty, you know. But we, surely not an animal. No. Well, I mean, but in theory, if you wanted to marry, you know, a mythical animal, that would be fine. You can't come in with an animal and be like, I'm going to marry it. But you Because that would be bestiality. You wanna, yes, that would be frowned, That would be wrong. Be frowned upon. You are a vegan. On the other hand, it's if you want to marry them, but, you, but you're not going to do anything nefarious, who cares? If that's like if, if you know, if, if your, your dog is your best friend and that's who you want to marry, then marry it. What the fuck do we care? It's none of our business. It's a free country, right? Mm. I mean, there's no, there's no endorsing of any sort of, you know, bad behavior in, implicit in that, right? And so... But we're um, so far removed from that as a society. I mean, you can't even... Hardly just... Only just allowed to marry someone of the same sex, let alone someone... Whatever you want. Right. Um, you couldn't but, be further removed. But that being said, so I had this vision and I thought, you know, if we can if we can create a place where people can come together around shared values of community, volunteerism, um, personal freedom, then without the dogma of organized religion and without all the negative stuff that's existed and been promoted and been protected for centuries and, and eons by the churches of the world, not just churches, but all, you know, religions are complicit in this in some way, almost all of them. I don't know, there's, there's thousands of religions, which is a funny thing too, because if you think about it, right, there are six major organized religions. All of them believe in a totally different God. So best case scenario, if you even discount the other well, 3,500 I mean, ones, well, they do. Yeah. I mean, they all have, you know, I mean, I always think they all believe in the same God, but ultimately they just have different ways of approaching. Mm, I don't think you, uh, I think if you sat six people who were sort of zealots of each of those religions in a room, I don't think they would agree on that. No, that would no I'm sure you're right. I'm sure they yeah. wouldn't agree. I just think that, you know. Just, so, so then best case scenario, almost everyone's got it wrong. It's just wasting their time. Right, just wasting their fucking time praying to to the wrong. Well, it's control guy. for most people, right? For most religions, it's just control, control the people. Yeah, but I like this point. I like this perspective. Yeah, it's like best. That's the best case scenario. Best case scenario yeah. is that almost everybody's uh, playing, just wasting their fucking time praying away to a god that doesn't exist, uh, right? Because they got the wrong one. So, anyway, I listen to you know Sam Harris and whatever, and you know so, uh, but that's beside the point. So. Um, but anyway, that being said, I, you know, I don't want to tell anybody what to believe or what not to believe, but I do want to encourage people to come join the church and get involved in things that are positive, right? The things that we talk about. I mean, with our church, we're, you know, our slogan is miracles happen here. Um, we're going to create a place for miracles to take place, whether those are miracles of people connecting or miracles of us all getting together and going to build a house for someone or whatever. I mean, we're going to have a practice once we start opening permanent physical locations where, you know, we'll have food and beverage. And are, we'll you, have, are you employing people who have been freed through the Innocence Project? We're going to employ people from all walks of life. Yeah, of course. I mean, we're not going to, we're certainly not going to discriminate anyone. We're going to employ people who are qualified. You know, whether that means that you, uh, listen, there's people who made some pretty amazing hooch in prison, right? So maybe they come in and tutor, you know, Tom will tutor them and uh, <laughs> they'll become, uh, they'll become our, our hooch, bar crew. Hooch you know? um, so, um, so yeah, we're going to have a practice where you'll be able to pay cash or credit for your food or drink or merchandise or your wedding that you're going to do there or whatever event you're going to do at the church. Or you can go to our app, which will 
connect you with oppor- volunteering opportunities in your area, right? So, it, and then if you go and sounds like global citizen. Yes, we're taking we're taking. I think that we are going to take great elements from some great institutions like Global Citizen, like Hard Rock Cafe when it used to be, you know, the, the, some of the best parts of what that experience is for people and, uh, you know, other other great, uh, you know, another great example of, of a brand activation would be Margaritaville, right, where they've done such a wonderful job. I mean, obviously their thing is a, is a different. You know, so you see different. the Church of Rock and Roll almost rolling out like a line, like a chain of restaurants? Well, it's going to be a chain of they're probably going to disused, people are probably going to refer disused, to it. Are you going to use disused churches? Possibly, I mean, we're looking. They at are, there are more and more. Yeah. They're going to, there are more and more of them yeah. because people are. Fleeing. You're not, are you going to, you're not going to center in on the, on on that as a kind of as 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 your kind of main property. You know, you're not going to center in on using disused churches as opposed to just. We're certainly open to it. I mean, you know, it's it's been done by a number of people. I mean, Limelight was a famous example Absolutely. in New York, right? But there's it was a great club. So, but but we're going to be looking at bespoke, you know, real estate uh, opportunities. Whether that's an old firehouse or a church or a, uh, you know, it could be an old art studio or anything else. Jason, you just astound me. I mean, every single thing you do is just totally out there, but on a, on a, on a level of like just waking people up constantly. You you are the ultimate rebel. I mean, I'm just, trying. I mean, I listen. These are these the rebel are, with a cause, though. Rebel with a cause, that's a very – I'll take that as a compliment and appreciate it. But, yeah, I want to – you know, listen, I want to make a difference. Like, what else are we here for? And I think that I'm in a position to be able to do something. Uh, you know, I'm having a midlife crisis. People do whatever they do. I don't know how you can have a midlife crisis at my age. Maybe I'm going to live to be 116, which would be great. But um, – or not. But um, – you know, if so, that'll have to be a whole different podcast. You'll have to speak a lot more slowly. Any um, any more books coming out? I love Lulu. I think she's a rhinoceros. What's the what's the name of the book? So my children's book, my first children's book, is Lulu is a rhinoceros. Lulu is a rhinoceros. That's right. I, and um, it's, it's a beautiful book. It's very very endearing. Thank you. Yeah, it's the true story of my bulldog Lulu, who's actually a rhinoceros trapped in a bulldog's body. And it's about her struggle to find love and acceptance in a world where she's judged by her physical appearance instead of what she knows and what she sees in the mirror. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a it's a wonderful message. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's got a very strong anti-bullying and pro-tolerance message, but in a very cute package that kids can understand and relate to. There's a lot of funny stuff in it, and it's nice. You know, we were semi-finalists in the Goodreads Reader's Choice Awards. Um, we, uh, which is crazy for an independent release. Ellen was very kind to put it on her show, so it was on the Ellen Show on her 12 Days of Ellen program, which obviously was a huge lift for us. We have an animated TV show in the works. And we just started writing the you second. You offered book Ellen yesterday. a record deal, didn't you? I actually made a record with her in 1998. <laughs> Did you that. know that? I knew so that, that. You see, it's what yeah. I scratch. You're back. You scratch. This is where mine. all these worlds come together. This is where it's they so come strange together. and crazy. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, and it is true. Like all these worlds seem to collide. It's amazing. I mean, I think that there are artists that want to sign with me because they know about the work that I do in criminal justice reform, and they and they and, you know, obviously they want someone who's going to do well for them by their careers. Well, they probably trust you too. Exactly. They think you're not going to try and rip them off. Well, they you know, I think all things being equal, and that goes back to the church, right? I think people have a general feeling that they want to do good. And I believe that with, you know, with the church, and not to take away from Lulu's time here, but because Lulu is Rhinoceros is the book, and please get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart's carrying it now, it's, it's everywhere. Um, Lulu is a rhinoceros. Not Lulu thinks she's a rhinoceros. No. It's very deliberate, by the way. Not yeah. she might be a rhinoceros. No, we, she is, is one. a rhinoceros. It's up, it's up to everybody else to figure it out. No, absolutely. So, I am actually a straight man trapped in a gay man's body, but, you know. That's... Just, um, 
Wow. Do you have anything to say about that, Tom? So, no. I mean, what would you, what's your biography going to be? I am straight. I mean, what, what, Nigel is straight. Where, do you, you where, does that, where did that come in? I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> these, this six-pack, you know. Yeah. Definitely, you know, I'm just, I can't even believe it sometimes. I know, and Sorry. I'm 6'4 and blonde and trapped in this 5'11 and a half situation. It sucks, right? I thought you were a rhinoceros as well. That I'm was, a, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a um, human, you know. Yeah, Sorry, um, that's six my, foot female. My gender is human. Um, so, yeah, but, but with the church, I think that we are going to, with the Church of Rock and Roll, we are going to hopefully bridge a gap which exists in society where I think a lot of people want to want to do good they want to volunteer they don't know how you know and it's it's an interesting thing i had this on thanksgiving where my kids were with their mom and i was like well i should go volunteer somewhere i got nothing to do manhattan on thanksgiving is sort of not much to do so i called the or I, I checked into the one shelter that i knew was serving the most thanksgiving meals and they had all the volunteers they needed so i walked away and i was like well i tried i feel good but i didn't know where else i literally didn't know where else to call or do or what right that's, so that's that's really interesting i had the same thing at christmas i was at a loose end at christmas didn't have my kids and try tried to find somewhere that i could go and help and volunteer for the day because i had the day you know the day free and it's a, it's a depressing day for a lot of people who haven't got families on. i could not find anywhere the, the, I couldn't find a way to go and, and volunteer. In the end, I, I, there's some organi- this is back in England, I got some organization that sent me so much paperwork that I had to do so many background checks on kind of criminal, you know, children, you know, I mean, just... Um, they got your number, Tom. No, but but this but it would they made well, they want you to send difficult. you blood and they want you to send no you I just the, 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 I literally all I wanted to do was just go and like help help out but but I couldn't do it so yeah it they want your great grandmother's oh. social security number oh. it's like it's incredible and so I don't yeah, they do they, there are a lot of these barriers so I think what we're going to do is we're going to hopefully you know we're going to partner with whether it's the humane society or the homeless shelter or the register people to vote or clean the park or whatever it is it's funny like in the summer I like to walk on the beach and pick up plastic right. I mean, it's actually sort of therapeutic. I bring a cloth bag, you pick up a bunch of plastic, and I feel good about it. I do a little Instagramming from there, everything's fine, you know? Like, so even something as mundane as that, like, why not? And then you'll get a code, and you'll be able to come to the church and be rewarded by getting your first drink or your meal or whatever it is on us. Because you, right? So I, so I think we're going to create a good, a, a good, you and I will go, uh, we'll do church events together. We'll right. put on the shirts. I look forward know? to this. Yeah. We'll bring you. Maybe I'll take pictures. Oh, you can take pictures. Thank yeah, you. See that? Yeah, you'll be our photographer. Fantastic. You're, you're qualified for that, right? Once in a while. It's, I mean, you know, I, I have to dust off the camera. I saw a picture you took once. It was pretty good. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Thank I, you. Oh, no, no, I think it's all right. I think you might be able to, you know, you should probably consider doing it professionally. You know, you know? look at this guy. Right. I mean, he should be my agent. I'm telling you. Maybe you can produce photographers now. I can be your agent. I, you know, listen, I work, you know, for a nominal, you know, percentage. We'll negotiate. Jason there, Flum. You know? Join the Church of Rock and Roll. Buy his book, Lulu is a Rhinoceros. And follow me on Instagram, at It's Jason Flom. Follow him on Instagram. I will make you laugh. I will make you cry. And unfortunately, probably both. In, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, it depends what day it is and what time. You're you know? our star, a rebel with a cause. My friend, thanks for coming on Shaken Instead. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, my friend. <laughs> Cheers.